morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, online or at one of our off-site campuses or one of the venues uh, here at the Long Point campus. We're glad that you're along also. Last weekend, I visited the Somerville campus. And that was a lot of fun. The guys doing a great job. Roy Jakes and the team there were uh, excited about what's going on uh, in your part of the world. Now, uh, most of you know that part of what we do as a church is we plant churches. We believe that every community needs a life-giving church. Would you agree with that? Yeah, about four of us do. I'm going to give you another chance. It's one of our values. We believe every community needs a life-giving church. How many of you agree with that? All right, that's better. Okay. In Somerville, they were yelling, just shouting. But anyway, so this weekend... Three brand new churches. City Reach Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. How many of you think they need Jesus in, on the strip there? Okay, good. Uh, next Level Church, Saratoga Springs, New York. Anywhere in New York needs Jesus. Uh, City Reach Church in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, so if you know anybody in that area, somebody from Pennsylvania that knows Jesus, that's great. And uh, we're excited. That's... That's church number 575, 76, and 77 over the last 15 years. So. And then uh, I ask you to pray for me. I'm leaving this afternoon, flying to London. And uh, for the next three days, uh, we, we are gathering. We had hoped to have 15 of the largest churches uh, in the UK uh, just for a roundtable for about three days. Going to talk to them about some of the things that we love and value and believe. And um, we ended up with 50 of the largest churches only because 50 is where the cutoff line is. Unprecedented. We're excited. We think it's the start of something incredible in the UK. A lot of good things going on in the UK, but I think this will fan the fire uh, for that. And then, and then I'll hop a plane to Japan. And next weekend I'm speaking in Tokyo. And uh, in Tokyo, uh, most uh, Christian churches are very small. And uh, we've started Art Tokyo. I'll be preaching in an art church with 4,000 people in Tokyo next weekend. And so you'll be praying about that. Uh, I'm going to be doing, I do a morning encouragement on Facebook, and I'm going to be doing it from, from London and from uh, Tokyo this next week. So if you want to keep up with where, where we're at, what we're doing. <clears throat> so let me ask you, let me ask you this. When, um, when can you remember a time in your life when you experienced the most of the presence and power of God. When did you really, really, when was the presence of God most real to you? Let me put it that way. Time in your life. Um, I was in a, a small group, our small group. My wife and I go to a marriage small group. And uh, a week ago, and the leader asked a question at the beginning of the group, said, tell us about a really difficult time in your marriage. And I thought, it ain't happening here. Because if I talk about it here, I'm going to have a difficult time when I get home. Okay, okay, yeah. How do you understand that? Just a little bit. And uh, so, but anyway, uh, he went ahead and defined, we're studying a book uh, on marriage by Tony Dungy and his wife. Tony uh, was a coach and a football player and commentator on uh, NFL on TV. Great guy, loves Jesus. And that particular week, they told the story of their teenage son who committed suicide and what a tragedy it was and how that things like that oftentimes tear apart a marriage. 
and he talked about the fact that because of some, some things, patterns they had in their marriage and just the grace of God that they grew closer and they really experienced the presence of God during that time. So my wife and I thought about that and we, and we shared with the group uh, some times that we had gone through uh, similar experiences. Uh, a lot of you know a month after we moved to Charleston, didn't know really anybody. We had a car wreck. I think we got a picture of the wreck the next day, full color picture on the front of the newspaper. And um, our kids were injured. Jason was uh, in a coma for a couple of weeks. And it was uh, just a real, real difficult time. And a couple of years later, uh, Jessica uh, was uh, injured by a jet ski in a jet ski accident in the Wando River. Hit full, full blown um, while she was in the water and broke all of her ribs and collapsed her lungs. And in fact, somebody rescued her off the bottom of the Wando River. She would have drowned there. And um, I can remember we called an ambulance 45 minutes away uh, because of the way the roads were back then. There was no 526 highway around. And, um, and so we just, we put her on a ski board, put her in the back of an SUV. They were speeding to the hospital. And I'm in the back with her just watching her stop breathing and I'm yelling, Jessica, you got to breathe, you got to breathe. And it was, just, it was awful. And the, even the uh, memory of it, in the, uh, I don't talk about it much, it's just, it's just hard. And uh, we got to the hospital and they saved her life at East Cooper Community Hospital, which is where she works now as a nurse. And then they transferred her downtown, but they, we were still in the weeds because a couple of days later she developed adult respiratory distress syndrome and I uh, looked that one up, and um, uh, the doctor said that she had very little chance to live. And she did. She lived through it. And um, some of you have gone through similar things and uh, perhaps had a different outcome. But in the midst of it, uh, Debbie shared with our group that we have never experienced God's presence like we experienced God's presence in those two instances. Honestly, never have we, we we've gone through trials, but never have we gone through a trial where we didn't experience God's presence in that way. Now, some people, I've heard people say, you know, boy, I tell you what, I'd go through it again just to be that close to God. Well, I'm not that mature. Um, I wish it didn't happen in the first place. Don't ever want to go through it again. But I do know that if I do go through things, that Jesus is there uh, in the midst and there's the presence of God. Many of you have shared similar experience. Um, most of us encounter fiery trials from time to time. In fact, I would just say this. We're going to talk about uh, lessons from a furnace and how to go through a, a, a fiery trial. And some of you are here today and you're right in the middle of one. And it's not an accident that you're here. I believe God has some things to say to you. Um, others of you have been through one and you're just coming out of it. And hopefully you'll see some things that will help you as you progress through. And others of you, you're not going through anything right now. Uh, you will. Okay, this is life. And so take good notes. Uh, this isn't heaven. This is, this is Mount Perfect. This is not heaven. And uh, we all go through trials. But few of us will go through one as hot as we're going to study today. Uh, like our trials, Jesus was in the middle of this one in an incredible way. We're studying Daniel. And uh, we're calling it When Faith and Culture Collide. Uh, in the first chapter, we introduced you to four young Jewish boys who their faith and their culture collided. They did real well. They were promoted. And, um, and uh, th they were about 14, 15 years old 
when they did the courageous things that they did in chapter one. Now we're 20 years later. Chapter three is 20 years later, so they're about 35 years old. And we're gonna hear from three of them. Daniel's not mentioned in this chapter, but the other three young men are, and uh, they go through a fiery trial. We've got a lot of work to do, a lot of ground to cover. Let's dig right in. Daniel chapter three, verse one. Uh, if you have an outline sheet, it's there. If you have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Uh, let's look at it. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. What, what's that mean? That's 90 feet by nine feet, okay? Take the biggest building in Mount Pleasant, and this is as big as that, or as tall as that is, but just nine feet wide. What, what was it of? Doesn't say. May have been an image that looked like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know. We don't know. But it's this huge image in a plain, um, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. It's kind of a who's who. Everybody didn't come. It, this is the leaders. And it's kind of listed in ranking of leaders. You need to understand about Babylon. Babylon conquered all kinds of other people and took their cultures in and made them leaders just like he did with these four Hebrew kids. And so there are, there are all different cultures that are represented here, but this is a who's who. This is the leaders that he invited to come. Says uh, to the dedication, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, magistrates, all the other provincial officials assembled uh, for the dedication and they stood before it and then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language uh, this is what you're commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn flute zither lyle harp pipe uh, hip-hop uh, rap even some country music you must fall down and worship the image of gold that king nebuchadnezzar has set up Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn flute, all the other stuff, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody did except for three guys. And that's where the tension of the story comes. Now, would you agree that somebody who creates a 90-foot image and demands that everybody bows down to it probably has a bit of an ego problem. Anybody? Anybody? Maybe a little bit of an image problem, a little narcissistic, um, got some issues, all right? And it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a Babylonian mentality that kind of breeds this. Babylonian culture, uh, bigger is better. It's more about who you know than who you are. It's more about how you look. On the outside than what you look like on the inside. It's about who is serving you rather than who you're serving. It's about who has the most toys, biggest chariot, who's hanging with the coolest kids. In Babylonian culture, images everything. Hmm. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Sounds like a culture we live in. It's about making others bow down to your image so that you'll feel bigger and taller. Babylonian culture, and it's going to clash with three young Hebrew men who are serving their God, their culture, uh, while serving at the pleasure of the kings. Two cultures are getting ready to collide. The question is which one will win. So I want to talk about some dilemmas that they faced. 
that we will face. Uh, I want you to kind of bring your life up next to this. I'm going to help you to do that. And let's learn some things from a fiery furnace. Here's the first lesson. You can bow down to an image or step into your destiny, but you can't do both. You can bow down to an image or step into your destiny, but you can't do both. What do I mean by that? These guys had a destiny. God had a destiny for them. No accident that they were born when they were born. Um, at that time in history, no accident they were carried away into Babylonian captivity. No accident that they were chosen among all the young men to represent the Jewish uh, intellectuals. Um, no accident, because God had a destiny for them. And his destiny was about his redemption plan. And it's always that way. It's always that way. God has a destiny for you. It's no accident you were born where you were born. You live where you live at the time that you live. It's no accident that you're here today. Um, you, you're, you're predestined by God to be here, and he has a destiny for you. I know the plans that I have for you, God says. Plans to prosper you, give you hope and a future. New Testament, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, he says that before the creation of the world, God ordained, God thought up good works for you to do. Those of you who are recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works. God has a destiny for you. You can either bow down to an image or step into your destiny, but you can't do both. Let me explain that. What was wrong with the image? What's wrong with this, this 90 foot by 9 foot? What, what's the big deal with that? You need to understand the next thing I'm going to tell you to understand this entire chapter. And here it is. It wasn't an image birthed by the Spirit of God. It was not an image. It wasn't the first time in this particular real estate. If you dial back to uh, earlier times, do you remember when a group of people got together and decided to build a building that reached to the heavens? And God said, no, you're not. And he confused the tongues. What was the name of that? That was the Tower of what? Babel, which was where? Babylon, right here, same place. So it's not unprecedented, it's been done before. Why didn't he want him to build that? Because it was not a vision birthed out of the Spirit of God. Why was it wrong to bow to this image? Because it was not an image that was birthed out of the Spirit of God. It was man-made, self-serving, and bigger than life. So let me talk about you and me. We're, we, we, we all are about image building. Uh, these days, sophisticatedly, we call it building your brand, okay? We're all about image building. It's, and image building is about intentionally making ourselves seem different and oftentimes bigger than we really are. You ever gone to a conference and stood around? Maybe just preachers do this. And you're standing around and talking, saying, how big is your church? You're thinking, take Easter attendance and multiply it by two, and that's what we'll tell them. You know what I mean? It's about building a bigger, bigger. Only preachers do this. Bigger makes me feel better. You can bow down to me, and I feel bigger. Building images. Building images. Now, you know, when you enhance the truth, would you agree that it's really a lie? 
Anybody here? I'm going to get you with this. Say yes. Okay. So the question is, don't we all want to present our best side? Don't we want to put our best foot forward? Is that Really, we do. Don't we want to show ourselves the best? Best light. There, there's nobody here. I don't think there is. Anybody here that got up this morning, went to your closet, and you said, I want the ugliest, I want the clothes that make me look worse. Yet, how many of you have one of those? You got a shirt that shows everything right here, okay? No, I don't want to wear it. You, you didn't do that. You didn't go to the mirror and say, I got a zip the size of Texas on my nose. Let's circle that thing so everybody can see it. No, what did you do? Got the powder, cover it up. That's okay, that's okay, that's okay. We want to put our best foot forward. So when is it wrong? When your foot doesn't look like yours. You're building an image. You're bowing at an image that isn't, uh, you know, it's a fine line between image building and honest attempt to look your best. It's hard for all of us, especially in the culture that we live in, especially females in the culture that we live in. Hollywood and Madison Avenue and the uh, clothing designers have an image for you to bow down to. And oftentimes, it's not an image that was birthed by the Spirit of God. If you don't look a certain way, if you aren't shaped a certain way, if you don't have certain qualities, then you don't fit into the image and then you feel bad and you try to look and you try to do it. It's just this terrible, terrible circle of just, just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a downward spiral. And just as Nebuchadnezzar, had image or had influence over the entire known world, his image was to be bowed down to. So American culture influences the world. And it raises up images that the world bows down to. Um, hang with me on this. So apparently, Sports Illustrated has a swimsuit edition. Anybody familiar with that? Heard about that. And so I was doing a little research this week on this subject, and. <laughs> <laughs> apparently there is a model apparently there was a plus size model this, this year first time on the cover and apparently there was a model won't mention her name but she's very famous and she's in the swimsuit hall of fame I didn't know there were had one so I did this research this week and <laughs> she's irritated about the plus size model because here's what she said she said, I don't like that we're talking about full-figured women because it's glamorizing them, because your waist should be smaller than 35 inches. When I read that, I thought, really? Mine's not. I'm a 36. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about in this next one. I'm actually a 38, but I ain't going there. Not going there. Would be more comfortable there. But I'm a 36. But guys don't care. I mean, we do a little bit, but we don't. I mean, like the other day, um, I was at an event, and I wore the exact same thing that another guy wore. We saw each other and went... <laughs> Females would go to another service. You don't want to be seen, Whatever. But there's this pressure, this pressure, and she says this, and somebody else tweets, 
gives her name, calls plus size swimsuit cover unhealthy. Right, because plastic surgery and eating disorders are better. <laughs> I don't know, I, whatever. But it's this image that we bow down to. Photoshop. This, uh, so this other female MMA fighter gets called out because they photoshopped her picture to make her look, her arms look thinner, cut off the edges of her arms, look thinner. And it's, I'm thinking, every time I see this, I feel sorry for what we as men and as a society, what we make women bow down to. It's just disgusting and it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. I'm going to be on a rant here just for a minute. But what I thought I would do is I thought I would, I, I went to our team and I said, why don't you Photoshop a picture of me? Okay? I want to be taller, thinner, and have more hair. And so here's the picture they took of me. Okay, here's me. This is me. Is it up there? Okay. That's me. All right. So here's what they photoshopped. Yeah. Yeah, look at the glasses and the face. That's me. They cut a little off here, put the beard a little bit darker, put more hair. Joshua says, yeah, Dad, they just put my body in, and that's garbage. That's not true. That's not who God made me. Right? Be all right, I suppose. Doggone, I wished he would have, but you know what? Whatever. You laugh at me. I look at your Facebook profile. Some of you don't look a thing like your Facebook profile at all. Not even close. You got a selfie stick up here. You're doing the turtle so that the gobble doesn't happen right here. You know, it's ridiculous. You want to put your best foot forward. But we're bowing down to an image that wasn't birthed by God. I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. Okay, let's just be honest. You know, my whole gig is I'm real. Boy, Greg, you're real. Sometimes I'm so real I can be fake at being real. You understand what I'm saying? Because there's this image here that we bow down to. Okay? And here's what God says. Romans 8, 29 gives us the image that God intended us to be conformed to. It says, let's read this one out loud. For those God... Uh, we'll, we a lot, a lot of times move our lips when we read out loud. Let's do this. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Hollywood, Madison Avenue, and the fashion designers. Oh, no, that's the revised substandard perversion. It says the image of who? His son. What did Jesus look like? Let me tell you what he didn't look like. He didn't look like your big family Bible or your children's Bible, this blonde, long-haired, beautiful. No, that's a European image of Jesus. What did he look like? We don't know. There aren't any pictures. I'm kind of glad of that. Isaiah, though, says that he really, there wasn't anything about him that was like you would go, wow. That's kind of cool because it's not about that. It's about this inside here. Does that make sense? It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. Do your best with the outside, but don't bow to an image that isn't birthed by the Son of God. So young Hebrew men, are uh, they're out here in this field. He says, bow down, and there's thousands of people there. 
The king doesn't see them, but somebody did, and they ratted them out. Probably guys that wanted their job. And here's what the king Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. That's because temptation always gives you a second chance. Okay? Temptation always gives you a second chance, and he does here. He says, but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? So remember, you can't bow down. You can bow down to an image, or you can step into your destiny. But unfortunately, you can't do both. Here's a second thought. You need to be ready to answer the questions before the circumstances around you pose them. You need to be ready to answer the questions before the circumstances around you pose them. Get the picture, big statue, angry king, everybody's bowing, hot furnace, three guys are standing up, and the king says, okay, you got one more chance, here's the temptation, should we bow? Here's what the guys didn't do. The guys didn't call an emergency meeting to say, hey, maybe we could bow and ask for forgiveness later. It'd be better to live than die. Or how about we just curtsy? I'm going to England, so I got to learn how to do that. I guess when the queen comes by or whatever, I don't know. I, I, I love when I read scriptures to put myself in their place. I don't just kind of read them. I just, I, I, I'm a feeler a little bit. I want to feel the scriptures. I was reading this, and I thought, you could just hear the crackling of the furnace. They could feel the heat. They could feel the heat. You're going in there. You're going to be burned alive. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? They're men of conviction. They had their mind made up. Next verse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. In other words, we're, no need for a discussion here. We're not even going to talk about our mind is made up. Such courage. Next question. Could you do that? Could I do that? Let's give you a what if. What if you were on a mission trip in a country where evangelism is treated as a criminal offense? You were told that you would be tortured if you don't renounce Christ. What would you do? What would you do? Could you do it? Is there anything that you could die for? Is there anything in your life that you would willingly lay your life down for? We don't have to do this in America. I just thought we'd do a what if today because this is happening all over the world. Is there anything? I'd die for my kids. Would you die for your kids? I found this. Before you were conceived, I wanted you. Before you were born, I loved you. Before you were here for an hour, I would die for you. This is a miracle of love. Mothers know what that feels like. You know what that feels like, okay? So maybe we would die for our kids. Maybe we would die in a military situation. Let's talk about guys. You know, this week, um, this week there was, a, it was it this week or last week that there was a, uh, Medal of Honor winner who was a Navy SEAL. And the guy went in to, ca uh, to uh, get a, somebody that was captured by Taliban or by uh, ISIS, I don't remember which. But the guy that won the Medal of Honor was the second man in. They, were, they, they knew going in, we're gonna, there's going to be unfriendly fire in here. Second man in. What happened to the first man in? He got killed. And the first guy in knows that that is a distinct possibility. But he did it anyway. What a hero. How do you do that? 
I think they're, it's loyalty. It's loyalty to one another. They train that way. It's loyalty to, their, to your cause. It's, it's, it's you decide in advance how you're going to respond. It's not like, oh, wow, we haven't seen this. No, you're trained. This is what we're going to do. And when this happens, you're going in, I'm going in. You don't decide right there. You decide way back here what I'm going to do before the culture, the society, the situation, the circumstance presents you with it. That kind of loyalty takes time. We're at different places in our relationship with God. Some of us are brand new. Some of us have walked with Christ for a long time. And we've seen him do great things in our life. But here's the question. Have you predetermined your loyalty to Christ? Have you? Have you answered the question in your heart about whether there's anything that could make you turn away from him? Most of us here are Christ followers. Most of us are. Have you said, have you thought about this? Is there anything that could turn my heart away from Christ? Is there? This is difficult, but I want you to do this. I'm going to go through some things. What if, what if there was a sickness that got worse and worse and worse and didn't seem to get better? At what point would you go, ah, I don't know if I believe in God? What about unanswered prayer? What about loss of a loved one? That's a tough one for all of us. What about unjust decision against you? What if you were locked up and tortured for your faith? I think about this, this pastor in Iran that recently was let go. You know him, a lot of us were praying for him. And he was tortured for four years for his faith, tortured for four years for his faith, and he didn't give it up. I read a story about him this week, which was very interesting. What a hero. Um, the first year he was in prison, terrible conditions, he led eight Muslims to the Lord, okay? And so they figured out he was doing that, so they transferred him to the worst prison. I remember when they transferred him to the worst prison. We didn't know why. That was the reason. They transferred him to the worst prison. You know what his attitude was? Fresh opportunities to share Jesus. Until finally, they had to put him in solitary confinement. Not only did he not reject his faith, but he said, I'm going to live my faith out right here. That guy's a hero. That's a hero. That's a hero in, in my eyes. So what would you do? What would, see, until you resolve stuff, the enemy will be relentless in hassling you with what ifs. In the early years of ministry here at Seacoast, I wanted to quit almost once or twice a month. Now, I'm not talking about normal quitting. Every pastor you know wants to quit on Monday. It's just the way it is. You know, especially the more services you preach. I preach four services in a row. I'm not a young chicken anymore. And so on Sunday afternoon, I don't want to talk to anybody. All I want to do Sunday nights is watch a violent movie. That's all I want to do. <laughs> watch a violent movie, and I'm fine. And on Monday, on Monday, I'm not good for anything until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You ask me what I want to do, I want to quit. I don't like doing this anymore. You say, why don't you take Monday off? Because I don't want to feel that bad on my day off. I don't. I, so I take Friday off. feel better by Friday. So that's normal. That's normal. Nor we all have that. That's normal. But there were times when that's all I wanted to do was quit. Maybe I'm not good enough. Results aren't what they are. Can't do this well. And the devil just harassed me nonstop. Until finally I resolved in my mind that that wasn't even an option. I don't matter how bleak the situation looked or how miserable I might feel, I'm not quitting. And you know what? The devil left me alone. Went on to something else. I heard about a teacher who had those same feelings, and finally she yelled at the devil, you might as well stop it. I will never, ever, ever, ever quit. 
you'll have to kill me, and then I'll be home with Jesus and you lose. <laughs> I like that. Maybe you need to yell at the devil. Maybe that's what you need to do right now. And just say, you know what? You know what? I've made up my mind. I'm not quitting. I'm not going back. You might as well leave me alone because you're wasting your time. So what have you learned? We've learned you can't bow down to an image, or you can bow down to an image or step into your destiny. Can't do both. You need to be ready to answer the questions before circumstances pose them. Here's the third thing. It's not the temperature in the oven that matters. It's about who's in the fire with you. Isn't that good? It's not the temperature of the oven. It's who's in the fire with you. Pick up the story. King gets mad at their refusal. Heats up the furnace seven times. How hot was that? I don't know, but very hot. Throws them in. In fact, as he's throwing them in, the men that are throwing them in die because it's too hot. Throws them in the furnace. Apparently the king can see them walking around in there. They shouldn't be walking around. But not only are they walking around, but there's four guys in the furnace. The king says, we threw three guys in. There's four in there. Who was the fourth guy? Jewish tradition says it was an angel. Christian tradition says it was the pre-existing form of Jesus Christ. That's who I think it was. He was in the fire. In fact, he promises that there's not a place you can go but what he won't be there. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're going through a fiery trial right now, there's a fourth man in the trial with, or in the fire with you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then uh, verse 27 says, And the high officers, officials, advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. There wasn't even a smell of smoke. Now, you, we go through the fiery trial. Oftentimes, there's a smell of smoke. There's the lingering. There's the what-ifs. There's all of that kind of stuff. A sign that you've been fully delivered from the fires that you won't smell like smoke anymore. My dad, you guys have get, got to know him. He, he lives here. He's in service this morning. Uh, my dad has always liked the bargain. In fact, uh, if you ask him today, probably... Or he'll ask me, he'll go, how much do you think I paid for this pa these pants? <laughs> uh, I'll look at them. You know, at first I would go, oh, $50, you know, because they're pretty nice. Oh, no, $5. Got them at Goodwill. <laughs> now I lowball him just to, just to tick him off, you know. <laughs> 75 cents. I'll bet you didn't pay more than that, didn't you? Whatever. So one year, <clears throat> one year for Christmas, they were living in St. Louis, Missouri, pastoring church there. We all came there, and the, they had a Christmas tree, and it smelled you go by the Christmas tree and be like, something burning here? Mom, what's, what's up? What had happened was, is that there, there was a store in Kansas City that a really nice night, like a Saks Fifth Avenue type store that burned, but they got the clothes out of there, and Dad found out he could buy them for nearly nothing, really expensive stuff, leave the tags on how much they cost, put them in a box, and got them for us, and they smelled like smoke. They had not been fully delivered. <laughs> See, after you go through a fiery trial, you usually smell like smoke for a while. That's all you talk about. Sometimes the trial defines you. Sometimes the trial was your own fault, your own sin, your own mistake, your own issue. Sometimes it's something that you can't control, but you, that's all, that's all you, you obsess, that's all you talk about. And one day you wake up and you can't smell the smoke anymore, and you realize that the trial wasn't a defining moment, it was a refining moment. You're no longer defined by your loss or mistakes or sin, you were refined by it. Life smells good again, no smell of smoke. So the king repents, gives them all a promotion, declares Israel 
Israel's God, the one true God, they live happily ever after, never to be heard of again. True story. You never hear of these guys again, never mentioned again. Here's the problem. Every fiery trial doesn't have a happily ever after. Would you agree with that? Beth Moore has a great study on Daniel, and in it, she uh, gives three scenarios when you face a fiery trial. Number one, we can be delivered from the trial. Delivered from the trial. I love that. That's called a miracle. It's happened. I've seen it in my own life. And when that happens, our faith is built. Second scenario is we can be delivered through the fire. That's what these guys did. They went in the fire, and in, in those cases, their faith is refined. They come out the other side, better off for it. Or number three, we can be delivered by the fire. That means the fire takes us straight into the arms of Jesus. And at that point, our faith is perfected. You know, I hate it. I've said this before. It's one of my rants. I hate it when some, a Christian dies of cancer and people say, she lost her battle with cancer. She did not. She won eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. She lives forever. She is with Jesus. She beat me to the place that I want to go. Never forget that. Never forget that. Even if the fire burns you up, your faith is perfected and you are delivered by the fire. There are many more martyrs delivered by the fire than delivered from the fire. If you look around the world today and in Christian history, then you ask, well, where's Jesus then? Where's Jesus when my loved one died? Where's Jesus when the business was lost? Where's Jesus when the prayer went unanswered? He's in the fire with you. The question is, can we remain true to God when he doesn't come to the rescue when we think he should? Let me go back to the most important scripture of the whole chapter that we skipped over. This last scripture I want to do, and then I want to tell you a story and we're done. It's Daniel 3 and verse 17. And the three young men's response to the king when he said, uh, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace and, and uh, what God's going to deliver you then? They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, either before the fire, from the fire, through the fire, or by the fire. Okay? Your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. You know, oftentimes when we pray, we act like we know what is best. And we, we pray outcome prayers. Theirs wasn't, they weren't committed to a particular outcome. God can do whatever he wants to do. We're going to be loyal to God. You follow that? Oftentimes, Outcome-based faith says, if God delivers me the way I expect him to deliver me, I will trust him. If he delivers my loved one the way that I think that he should, I will trust him. God, if you're real, do this in my life. God's not on trial. God is God. He's omniscient. The only way you know what's best for you or your loved one is if you are omniscient and we aren't. God is. This is a tough truth. But this is truth. Um, last story. A young Anglican minister named Jeffrey Stuttered Kennedy volunteered to serve as a chaplain with the British forces in the Western Front in World War I. He was soon given the nickname of Woodbine Willie. Uh, I guess there were cigarettes that were called that. 
because he would bring a Bible and cigarettes. The chaplain would bring a Bible and cigarettes. So they loved him, a great guy. And they also loved the fact of his courage under fire. In fact, in 1917, he won the military cross at a particular battle after running into no man's land to provide comfort to those who were wounded during an attack, the German line, he actually died. 1916, year before that, he wrote from the trenches uh, in France to his small son who was at home. He wrote him a letter, the following words. He said, the first prayer that I want my son to learn to say for me is not keep daddy safe, but God make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Life and death don't matter, my son. Right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still. But daddy dishonored before God is something awful. Too bad for words. I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about safety too, old chap, and mother will appreciate that. We'll put it in, but put it in afterwards, always afterwards, because it really doesn't matter near so much. Every man and woman and child, he says, should be taught to put first things first in prayer, both in peace and in war. And that is, I believe, where we have failed, he says. Make daddy brave. Make daddy brave. See, the flames didn't go away, but the power of the flames did. And when you recognize that Jesus is with you in the fire, the flames may or may not go away, but the power of the flames will. So what flames are you facing? What trial are you in? It may seem that it's seven times hotter than everybody around you. Can I tell you this? When the bottom drops out, God drops in. When the bottom drops out, look around. Look around. God drops in. Whenever bad things happen to God's people, he promises to be there. He doesn't say that bad things never happen, because they do. They do. But he says, Jesus said it this way. He said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Last words he said to his disciples in the book of Matthew. Remember this, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you're in a trial, you need to know these five words. He is here with me. Can you say them together? He is here with me. One more time. He is here with me. Would you bow your heads here and in the campuses? There are people in our our body today who are going through fiery trials. It may not be you. It may be the person next to you, somebody on your, your row. And I want us, as our heads are bowed, I want us to say that again, all of us together, we're saying it we're not in a trial right now, we're saying it as strength to somebody who's close to us. He is with me here. Can you say it together? He is with me here. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the examples of heroes of faith. And God, today we 
are going to take some time to respond to you, and I pray that you would just speak to us in a powerful way, God, that you would give clarity sometimes in situations where we need that. You'd give courage, God. Give understanding and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.